I'd invite you to turn to Luke 16, and please stand with me as we read the Word of God. We'll be reading from verses 19 through 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that you would enlighten your word to our understanding and that you would bring all praise to yourself and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't know if any of you have heard of uh, Akashi Kaikyo. But that is a Japanese suspension bridge, which has the longest central span of any bridge in the world. It spans 6,532 feet, which is about 1.2 miles. When we talk about uh, spanning in, in a bridge, the span is the distance between two points where the supports are. So you think of a bridge that has supports. Between any two supports is a span. This bridge has the longest span, 1.2 Miles, an incredible feat of engineering, and for mankind, certainly. But this bridge not only has one span, it has three spans, and in total spans 12,800 feet, about 2.4 miles long overall. It took 10 years to construct and over 100 engineers. Uh, The bridge links the city of Kobe on the Japanese mainland of Honshu to an island called Iwaji Island. And it crosses a strait that's called the Akashi Strait, hence the name Akashi Kaikyo Bridge. Uh, In addition to its length, the bridge was designed with a dual-hinged stiffening girder system that allows the structure to withstand winds of about 180 miles per hour. It also withstands earthquakes measuring up to magnitude 8.5 and harsh sea currents for which this Akashi Strait is known. In fact, prior to the bridge being uh, developed, 
only ferries were available to uh, ferry people from the mainland over to the island. And there were several storms uh, noted where two ferries sunk. Uh, the other thing about this bridge that's interesting is it's got tuned mass dampers that are designed to operate at the resonance frequency of the bridge to dampen forces. It has two supporting towers that rise almost 900 feet above sea level. And the bridge can expand because of heat by up to six and a half feet over the course of a day. It was constructed with 350,000 tons of concrete. I, I can't even imagine how much that is, but it's a big number. The steel cables have 190,000 miles of wire. And each cable is 44 inches in diameter. That's about four feet in diameter. Massive, massive cables. The point is, there, this is an amazing feat of mankind's engineering. But there is another gulf that exists, my friends, that no feat of engineering nor any man has solved nor can solve. And that is the gulf that spans between heaven and hell. And that is what I want to talk to you about this morning. In our passage in Luke chapter 16, we start in verse 19, understanding that there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. We know from uh, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, you'll remember when Paul uh, was on his missionary journey in Philippi, he came across a lady named Lydia who was down at the riverside, and she was, we're told, a seller of purple. Uh, purple would have been extremely expensive in these times. Uh, purple dye, that is. And that is why it was uh, usually only worn by royalty and the extremely wealthy. So this man in Jesus' parable here, we're told, is a wearer of purple. He is very wealthy. Uh, we're also told that he fared sumptuously every day. Uh, there is not a meal that this man missed, and every meal that he did have was excellent. In verse 20, but in contrast, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. This beggar, Lazarus, uh, <clears throat> is only mentioned here. This is not the Lazarus, by the way, of John chapter 11, the one Jesus raised from the dead, because he uh, died after this particular time. So this is the, the only Lazarus we read of in the parables. And we're, we're told that he's full of sores. He was laid at his gate. Uh, very likely, he was in a great deal of pain. He was covered in sores. Uh, and so someone or a group of people, perhaps, brought him and laid him at the gate of this rich man. And we're told that the purpose was that he might be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. This, this man who fared so sumptuously had enough, so much so, that even the crumbs that were to fall from his table could sustain another man. It's always important when we read the scriptures to understand the context of who this was originally spoken to. Jesus is speaking this parable in the hearing of the Pharisees. And so how would the Pharisees have responded to hearing about uh, this man who is covered in sores, who is a beggar, who sits at uh, another man's gate waiting for crumbs to fall from another man's table? And they would have seen him as unclean. 
they would have seen him as one to avoid, one with whom they wanted nothing to do, uh, very much as one under God's judgment as the reason for his calamity, for his condition. Uh, You'll remember as we read in John chapter 9 about the man born blind, uh, that the Jews had a particular idea about uh, those who were suffering and sin. In John chapter 9, verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, it is true that sometimes sin is linked with suffering and with calamity, but not always. We have plenty of examples in Scripture. Think of Job, for example, right, Uh, where the Lord was testing or allowing him to be tested. And in this case, we're told that Jesus... The works, Jesus says, the works of God must be revealed in him. God had a greater purpose for this man's infirmity from birth, that the Lord would demonstrate his power through him. So it is not always the case that one who is in a bad condition is there because of uh, sin, as the Jews believed. We're told a little bit later in this passage that this man was carried to Abraham's bosom, Uh, which really is a euphemism for heaven. In the Talmud, in the Jewish writings, uh, Abraham's bosom is a phrase that's used actually nowhere else in Scripture apart from this parable, but it is a euphemism for heaven. So we're told that this man, this, this, this man full of sores, this beggar, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So what we know is that he was clean internally. He had been forgiven his sins. He had trusted in the Lord, and he was carried to heaven. In verse 21 Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, in Israel, the the Jews would have looked at dogs very differently from how we look at dogs today. We see dogs as playful puppies that we want with us and sleep next to us, and we take care of them and feed them, and just as our as our own children, really. Uh, And that's, I think, probably unique to this culture. But In uh, these times, the Jews would have looked at at dogs as wild animals, as scavengers, uh, as those who were unclean. And what we're told is that the dogs came and licked his sores. In this parable, the dogs, who are beasts, they do not bear the image of God, show more mercy to Lazarus than does the rich man. Very important. The rich man who is made in the image of God, but who is corrupted by sin is not able to show mercy like the dogs can show mercy. Verse 22, so it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This, loved ones, is a real expression of the mercy of God. This man was transported mercifully by the angels to heaven. And there's a couple things I think that we can draw from this. I think the first thing is the beggar did not receive mercy from the rich man, right? He wasn't fed adequately by this rich man, and so he died. 
He also was full of sores, and so who knows? Infection could have set in. He wasn't treated. His wounds weren't bound up. There was no oil or ointment put on him to heal, and so he was left to die. And then, as I said just a moment ago, we also see the mercy of heaven here in transporting the beggar to heaven, to Abraham's bosom. Uh, In Acts chapter 7, you'll remember Stephen when he was being stoned. Stephen had indicted the Jews for their lack of belief in God, for their hard hearts. And in Acts 7, verse 51, he says to those in the crowd, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God And don't miss this, loved ones. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I chose this passage here because we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ, after he ascended, after he was resurrected uh, from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God and was seated. Here, Stephen has a glimpse into heaven and he sees the Lord Jesus standing. Why? Because Jesus is welcoming him into his kingdom, eternal. This is the mercy of heaven, loved ones. And it is there for all God's people. Praise the Lord. Back to Luke 16. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried to the angels, by the angels, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice, there is no transport, there is no mercy for the rich man Rather, in 23, verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. This man awoke in misery immediately after death. He died and he was immediately aware of being in torment. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, John MacArthur, had an, an interesting commentary that I noted on this particular verse. He said, The suggestion that a rich man would be excluded from heaven would have scandalized the Pharisees. Especially galling was the idea that a beggar who ate scraps from his table was granted the place of honor next to Abraham. Hades here is a euphemism for hell. It is the Greek word for the term, excuse me, for the abode of the dead. And in the New Testament, it is always used for hell, the abode of the wicked. So the rich man wakes up in torments in Hades. 
He lifts his eyes and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Notice he doesn't cry out to God. Father God, have mercy on me. He cries out to Abraham for mercy and for authority. Father Abraham, have mercy and send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. See, the problem with this rich man and the Pharisees Jesus is speaking about is that they are trusting in their pedigree. They're trusting in their birth as being Jews by birth. We have Abraham as our father, the Jews said to Jesus in John 8. We're not in bondage to any man. And Jesus said, you are the slave of the one whom you obey. If you obey sin, you are the slave of sin. And he calls them the children of the devil. So it was with this man trusting in his descent from Abraham. Father Abraham, have mercy You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 9 something very interesting about Israel. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. See the difference? The children of promise are those who are the true sons of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham, those who act like their father, Abraham. Sons always act like their father. All those, including us, who trust in the Lord, who believe his word, are acting as sons of Abraham. And it is as true for us as it was for Abraham that God's righteousness was counted to Abraham. The Lord's righteousness is counted to us. It was counted, accounted to him for righteousness that he believed, that he had faith. This man, this rich man, had no faith. He only had his pedigree and he was holding on to it. And unfortunately, it is not enough. It is not enough. There is a great gulf fixed that he is not able to pass. Let's keep going. Uh, This rich man, we're told in verse 24 also that he is tormented in the flame. He begs that Lazarus be sent to dip the tip, just the tip of his finger in water to cool his tongue. Can you imagine the kind of torment where your ask, your plea is just one drop of water to cool this torment, this flame on my tongue. This man had heaped up to himself a lifetime of iniquity. Every sin heaps up iniquity. And the Lord sees them all. He is all-knowing, all-seeing. He remembers everything. Every word that we speak, every deed that we do, we must give account of. This man who is rich, who was rich, and who fared sumptuously every day is here himself becoming the beggar, begging for one drop of water. 
because he didn't show mercy to Lazarus in life. And because he didn't show mercy to Lazarus, no mercy was shown him. And he receives no mercy in death. Loved ones, what is it that the Lord requires of us? Do you remember Micah 6, 8? What has shown you, excuse me, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly or justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the three things. Love, mercy, do justice, walk humbly with your God. Jesus in the, parable, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain what? Mercy, right? And James, in his epistle in chapter 2, verse 13, says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, the person whose life is marked by mercy toward others is always ready for the final judgment. Why? Because in showing mercy, he evidences that he himself has already received the mercy of God. Those who have been shown mercy and have received it will show mercy to others. We must. I want to point out three things that the scripture teaches us about the miseries of Hades, of hell, in these verses, verses 24 to 26. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. The first thing is that hell is a place of an unquenchable flame, a flame that will never extinguish. It never goes out. It always burns. And causes torment. Verse 25. But Abraham said. Son remember that in your lifetime. You received your good things. And likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. And you are tormented. The second thing we learn. From the scripture about hell. Is that it is a place. Where our own conscience. Will accuse us relentlessly. This man was accused. By his own conscience. Of what he failed to do in life. Failed to show mercy. And those remembrances are brought to mind over and over again. This is why in Hebrews chapter 9. When we're told that the blood of Christ sacrificed for us. Cleanses our conscience from all guilt. That we might serve the true and living God. Is so significant. Because man in his sin is plagued by a sinful conscience. All he can do suppress it, sear it, ignore it, but it's still there and it still accuses. And yes, the voice gets quieter over time as you continue to ignore and reject and sear that conscience with sin. But God has put in us, all of us, in, in man, a conscience to know right from wrong. And that conscience, we're told in hell, continues to accuse. The third thing that we note is... In verse 25, excuse me, verse 26, and beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. 
The third thing is there is permanent separation from God. God is the source of all good. Everything good that you experience is because of the Lord and his graciousness. Hell is hell because there is no God there. It is the absence of God. The absence of God is the absence of all goodness and therefore the presence of only torture and pain and suffering. So the rich man asks, please send Lazarus to give me some relief from this torment. And alas, unfortunately, he cannot be sent. Why? The gulf is too wide. No man can cross it. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. This, loved ones, is is a hard message. There's not a lot of times when we hear messages on hell, but they are important. They're sobering because they, by God's grace, can awaken sinners, but also drive us to the cross who who trust in Christ and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me from an eternity of that. We should not want anyone, anyone to end up there. It is far worse than you can imagine. So part of my appeal today is let us, including myself and myself first, share the love of God in Jesus Christ with all those around us while there is still day, while there's still time, In hell, there is no provision for parole. There is no court for appeals. There is no second chance. The judgment is final. And as I said before, men will be judged according to their deeds, including their words. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, verse 36, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Idle, idle meaning lazy, Careless, words that just slip out that maybe we regret afterward, but they still come out. Or that we just speak without giving a lot of thought to. Have you ever done that? I certainly have. Did you know that God hears all of those and records every one of those? And if we were to be judged by those idle words, would we be condemned? We would. Verse 27 Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Clearly now the rich man is the beggar himself. And notice he he still maintains a condescending attitude toward Lazarus, even in hell. Very interesting. The judgment of hell does not purge sin The judgment of hell does not soften the heart of any man. Revelation 22, 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. This man... Interestingly, the rich man understood that his brothers needed to repent in order to avoid hell, in order to avoid his predicament. For I have five brothers. 
Let him come that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place. And in verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The reason they don't hear is because they don't have ears to hear, because they don't want to hear. In John 8.47, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. In fact, a little earlier, he had said in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you act just like your father. Remember, sons act like their father. How? The desires of your father you want to do, verse 44, John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own his own, his own resources from himself. For he is a liar and the father of it. And all of his children are liars too and reject the truth. That's the point. Children of God, in contrast, love the truth. We come to the light, even though it is painful and we are convicted of our sin. We say, Lord, Search me and know me, just like David. Search me. See if there be any secret sin in me and purge me of sin. Lead me into the way everlasting. That is our cry. We want to act like our Father, the Lord, to be truth tellers, truth lovers, and those who show mercy. So all this points to the necessity of being born again. We cannot do this on our own. We in our natural state as sinful men and women and children are under condemnation already, the scripture tells us. We are born in sin. Even from the time we are in our mother's wombs, we are conceived in sin, David tells us. And then as soon as we are able we have and have opportunity to sin, we fill ourselves to the full with it. Every opportunity we have We sin. Why? Because the scripture says that anything that is not of faith is sin. And so we must be born from above. We must be born again. We must have the Spirit of God come and change our hearts and turn our hearts so that we love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Remember, those are the two greatest commandments, right? And so we must act like our Father. It's interesting that Jesus says, even if, back in Luke 16, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. There's no amount of signs or works or miracles that can convince anybody of the truth 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. There's no amount of works or, 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 or miracles that you can be shown that will change your heart from darkness to light. Do you remember in John chapter 2, right before Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John 3, the Jews were watching Jesus do many miracles. Uh, This is John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You see, they were watching, and this includes Nicodemus, who just a verse later is going to start talking with Jesus. Nicodemus was one of those who saw the signs, the many signs that Jesus did. And he, quote-unquote, believed. He knew that Jesus was a great teacher, come from God. But he didn't have his heart changed. He was still in darkness. And that's why Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men. He knew what was in man. He knew the sinful heart of men. And that the Jews sought for signs, and the Greeks sought for wisdom. Those were the things they wanted but were not the things that they needed truly to be saved. They needed a new heart. They needed to be born again from above. And so Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. Excuse me, Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The word of God has the power. It is living and active and will transform the heart of sinful man. No amount of miracles or signs or wonders will ever do that. But the word of God has that power. And so here's the point. If Moses and the prophets, the word of God is spoken and they don't hear that, then even though Lazarus be sent from the dead, they won't believe. They won't repent. They won't turn, you see? Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Here's the kicker. Though Jesus, the Son of God, would rise from the dead, they would not believe. He had prophesied his death many times. And even though he told them ahead of time and then actually rose from the dead and was witnessed by over 500 witnesses, they would not believe because their hearts were hard. Their eyes were veiled, blinded by sin. Their father is the devil. They have no ability to see just as we have no ability to see before We are born again, and the grace of God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. So, loved ones, I guess in summary, this parable has a couple of interesting lessons, I think. This parable is about the Pharisees on one level, representing the wicked, representing the unrighteous, who were rich, how? Rich toward themselves, not toward God who did not show mercy to their fellow man. Why? Because they themselves hate God. They're rebels against God. And so they have no love toward God, and therefore they don't obey God and have no love toward man. So the question I have is, are we ever like those Pharisees who fare sumptuously, who have all our needs met, who are taken care of well, well taken care of, Perhaps we even tithe as the Pharisees did, right? But Jesus says, 
but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faith. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set his sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Again, those who have received mercy will and must show mercy to others. This rich man was rich toward himself and not toward God and neglected the weightier matters of the law. He neglected his fellow man. He let him die while he himself fared sumptuously. So first of all, let us be warned not to be like the Pharisees, trusting in ourselves, trusting in our riches, while we're not rich toward God and not rich toward our neighbor. I want to be clear, the Bible does not condemn riches. The Bible condemns the wrong attitude about riches. Second Timothy chapter 6, Paul says to Timothy, In verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Those who desire to be rich and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Okay, so what is to be the attitude of the rich? if riches in themselves are not condemned. Look at verse 17 of 2 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, that means arrogant, high-minded, nor to trust in uncertain riches, 
but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. You see, the point is, we are to be rich toward God and to trust in Him. He is the greatest riches of all. The richest treasure of all is the Lord Himself. He is our inheritance. Let us rejoice in Him and, as a result, be rich in good works toward others because we love the Lord. Amen? I think the second thing that's interesting about this parable is this picture of the beggar. You know, all sinners are beggars. So all of us, in a sense, are the beggar. The question is, do you know that you're a beggar? Do you know that you're full of sores and sick from head to toe? You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah speaks to this, and he says, A last sinful nation, verse 4, Isaiah 1, A people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, For they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. Listen to this. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. That is a picture, loved ones, of all of us apart from Christ. In sin, because of our sinfulness, we are with open source. It's a disgusting picture, truly. And that is how God sees us. That's why it's written for our understanding. But in Christ, praise the Lord, when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you see him as the substitute, the one who bore your sin, all your sins, even your idle words that you don't think anyone hears or knows about, or that you have in your heart that maybe you don't even mouth, the Lord hears all of those. When you trust in Christ to bear all those sins, and he did for his people, You are forgiven. The wrath of God came down on His Son and He crushed Him. He was bruised and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah tells us. By His stripes, that is to say, by His death, the shedding of His blood, we are healed. That is our hope, loved ones. That is all our hope. Our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? Like the song goes. So why this parable? Who is that true rich man who shows mercy on beggars, sinners as we? Is it not the Lord himself who is the true rich man? Who has no wickedness, no sin in him. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And he shows mercy on us. Those who are beggars. Who are told that Jesus Christ was delivered up for our offenses and raised for our justification. Do you believe that message? 
And if so, you are sons of Abraham. You are those who believe the word of God, and it will be accounted to you for righteousness. And loved ones, once we have believed, the Lord himself binds up our putrefying wounds. He puts ointment on us and heals us. He gives us new hearts, new minds to trust in him, to love him, and to obey him. And in, uh, in line very much with this parable, rather than being the beggars that come to sit under the master's table just for a few crumbs, he bids us come to his banquet table and to feast and to enjoy his company, to commune with him. That's the point. That's what salvation is. If you want to think of it in a word picture, there we are out in the streets, the highways and the byways. We are sick and we need a good Samaritan to come by and bring us in and heal us. The Lord Jesus Christ to bind up our wounds and bring us to that table where we may feast with him and enjoy him forever. That's the point. What's the chief end of man, as the catechism says? You remember? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right? That's the picture, banqueting together, eating. I don't know about you, but I've become a lover of food as of late and enjoy a good feast. There will be an everlasting feast with the Lord. And he, I want to be clear, he himself is our feast. That's why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We are to feast on him. When we take communion and we commemorate, we remember his death. We are remembering that his body was broken for us when we eat the bread. We're feasting on him spiritually, like our catechism question this morning. It's not physically. It's not that the bread turns into the actual body of the Lord and the, the, the grape juice turns into the blood of the Lord. This is a spiritual reality. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus said in John 6, or you have no life in you. And then the very sad chapter, the majority of his disciples left him. They walked no more with him. And even his disciples, he says, will you also go away? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we know and are sure that you are the Son of God. You see, he had opened their understanding. He had opened their hearts to believe. And they feasted with him and on him by faith. That is what we are called to do as well. Loved ones, may it be known of us that we are merciful people, that we lift up our eyes and see the needs that are all around us because they are many. And there are people who are in need and need compassion. And the greatest compassion you can do for another person, the greatest way you can love another person is to give them what's best for them. I can't think of anything better to give than the word of God because in it is the power to save the soul. Now, let's also meet those physical needs, okay? Let's, let's feed them and clothe them and take care of them but not divorced from giving them the one thing that they need for eternal life. A man who is well taken care of and bound up in this life, if he dies without Christ, he will be like the rich man finding himself in Hades, in hell, in eternal torment, the flame that never is quenched, apart from God and constantly accused by his conscience. 
We don't want that for anyone. Let us be faithful and help us to be faithful to share the good news that many might repent and believe because they hear the word of Moses. They hear the word of the prophets. They hear the word of the Son of God alive and powerful. So I guess I close with the title of our sermon, What Can Span That Great Gulf? Well, certainly no man can. No feat of engineering can. No work of man can ever span that gulf, we're told. You know what can span that gulf? The mercy of God. The mercy of God alone in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Lay hold of him by faith. Trust in him for your eternal life and for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will live forever. This is the promise of scripture. Believe it. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for uh, even parables, Father. These, these ways that you have of teaching us the truths of your kingdom. Father, we know that no one, no man can hear these truths unless you unstop his ears and take the veil off of his heart and eyes that he may see that you are the great shepherd and you are calling. Father, I pray that everyone here this morning would hear your word and not, as James says, not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Father, work in our hearts. May we do what is just. Do what is right. May we love mercy and show mercy as you have shown great mercy to us in Christ. Not giving us what we deserve, Lord, which is hell. And may we, may we walk humbly with the Lord our God every day. You are great, Father, and may no one lift himself up haughty, arrogant, proud as the rich of this world are. Father, may we be rich toward you because we possess all things. We possess eternal life and we possess you. You have come to dwell. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit have come to dwell in your people to empower us to be different from the world, to live lives that show forth godliness, that the nations of the world would look at us and see you, not us. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for not redeeming, making good use of the time you've given us. Help us, Lord, to use all the resources you've given us for you and your glory. May we be mindful and always think this way, not just this morning. Father, thank you for each one here. Bless your word. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.